please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians 2. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a very familiar passage to many of us. It is a passage which many Christians rightly have hidden in their hearts. One of the first passages, perhaps, that they memorize, that they make a part of their being. I believe it's because it's richly theological. It tells us of the universality of sin and its essence. It tells us of the nature of God. And it is the classic proof text for us Reformed Christians for the, for the battle cry of the Reformation, sola gratia, which is grace alone. But not only is it theologically rich, it has spiritual weight to it. It is a snapshot of all human experience in Christ and out of Christ. It looks back at us, and it tells us those things which we may find comfort in and those things which we find most devastating. It's theologically rich, it's got spiritual weight and teeth, but it has a real beauty. It paints a vivid picture of God and of man, of man's sin, dark with the blackest black, and God's love and mercy with the brightest, most vivid light. It is a beautiful passage. But it's also a passage, and this is the point of the sermon this morning with God's help, it is a passage that is the framework of every Christian's testimony. doesn't matter what the circumstances of your conversion were. Those may differ. The details of how you came to Christ may differ from one Christian to another. But every Christian's testimony, when you pull, get away from all of the particulars, you have the same structure, you have the same form. What is our testimony? We use this word a lot. What, what is a testimony? It is the affirmation of what we have witnessed. What has been, well, we declare what has happened to us. Some of us may declare, I was converted out of drug addiction, or I was converted out of prostitution. And we have a tendency in our American way of thinking that those great sins which God has delivered men and women out of are somehow substantially different than those testimonies that say, I was raised in a Christian home. There was never a time in my life where I was not aware of the gospel. Details and circumstances may be different, but a testimony, it shares the shape and the structure and the parts of what we read in Ephesians chapter 2. So let us read. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of there, of the spirit that, now, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the suppressing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I can parse the words I can diagram the sentences. I can outline the thoughts. But I cannot save. Only you can do that, Lord. We are pleading with you as a congregation that what we have heard from your word just now would be a reality anew for one today. We ask you, O oh God, that your grace would not merely be a word which we know the definition of, but would be the reality of our own experience, that we might look into your holy word, and in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, be able to say, to test, to give a testimony to be a witness to that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but you, O oh God, have made us alive with Christ Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would be worshipped, that your glory would be amplified. We cannot add anything to your glory, but we wish to make much of you. And so we pray, Father, that you would remember my form, that you would remember that I am only dust, that I am only a man, that I may be redeemed, but I am a redeemed sinner. Lord God, we need you. Every day we need you. Be with us now in the preaching of your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Christian's testimony contains three parts. These three parts are the way in which I like to divide these ten verses. Their miserable condition apart from Christ, their blessed condition with Christ, and their new life in Christ. So verses one through three is our miserable condition apart from Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that, now, that is now working in the sons of disobedience, 
Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were spiritually dead. This is what the text clearly teaches. We were dead. We were spiritually dead. Our condition was dead in sin. We sinned actual sins and truly were made spiritually dead. This was not some psychological discomfort. This was not some emotional conflict. It wasn't that we were just uncomfortable with ourselves and with our condition, but were truly spiritually dead. We were apart from God. And this is what death is. Death is separation. It is We know death as physical death. When a living, breathing human being dies, they're laid in the casket, they're buried. What has happened? What has transpired? Well, that physical body which God had made and that spirit in which He has put into that body has now been separated. That body is no longer animate. That body no longer moves. That body no longer has any power to walk up, to, to get around. And it is no less true of physical death as it is with spiritual death. There is a lack of power which sin has caused. There is a transgression which we have committed a time and time again. We are helpless when we are spiritually dead to do anything that would bring glory to God, to do any good work which might uh, merit salvation, to merit His kindness to us. It is not merely that we were unable, but the text also reveals to us we were unwilling. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We walked in step with death. We were at home with sin. It was the air in which we breathed. It was our address. It is where we took up residency. It was the pattern. It was the course of our life. It copied a sinful, dying world. Now, externally, the passage, the passage talks of the world in two ways. It talks about it in an external sense. That is, those who are estranged from, God, estranged from God are collectively called the world. So you have a category. That category are the worldly ones. These are those who are estranged from God. They are the spiritually dead. But the spiritually dead do not so much exist out there as they also exist in here, inside the person. You see, the worldly are internally those who are influenced by precepts and ideas which are opposed from God. Now, there's some debate among this spiritual realities that are talked about. So is Paul talking to us about demons that are all over the place, possessing people and causing them to sin these great sins? Are they dead because they are possessed? Do they have demons in them? Uh, I'm from the 
south central part of Virginia, we have quite a few Pentecostals who would take this view. My neighbor, a good brother years ago, was convinced that demons were uh, flattening his tires and were under every rock. But what Paul is referring to here, what the Word of God referring to here, is a demonic force. It is a demonic force. But it's not so much that there are demons that are possessing these worldly ones, but these demons, this demonic force, this system of unbelief, this system of transgression, this system of spiritual death, why it can be called nothing other than demonic. It is not as if devils and demons are making the worldly do what they do. Rather, it is influencing them. They are efficient at what they do. They are efficient. There is a reason, brothers and sisters, why these demonic forces operate in different ways through influence in our country than perhaps in others. Some have asked, well, why don't we see these apparitions appear? And why don't we see these supernatural events? And the sad reality of it is, is the demonic forces that operate within our culture, within our context, have had the most success convincing us of atheism, of naturalistic atheism. If you were trying to deceive a nation and try to, uh, your goal was to oppose that which is godly, and all you had to do was tell that person that they are not the special creation of God, but they are the result of evolution through primates. What magic, what supernatural force would it really take? And that's where we are today. This influence which is all around us, the system of unbelief. Now, I had a discipleship group with one of our brothers, and I asked him what his age was. And he said he was 67 years old. And I thought perhaps he was the oldest. Maybe there's one here who's older. But the reason why I bring up age is because I want us to take a moment and really think about how this demonic system has influenced us over the course of human history. So we're going to assume that the oldest person here is 67. That might not be the case, but we're just going to assume that. There has never been a time in this brother's life where the miracles of Jesus have not been openly challenged. There's never been a time in this brother's life, 67 years, in which he has not felt the effects of what we call the sexual revolution. There's never been a time in his life where gender roles have been questioned. There's never been a time in his life which what the Bible prescribes as good and what, what the Bible prescribes as bad has not been reversed in many different ways. There's never been a time in his uh, grandchildren's life where they will not have to contend with the idea of gender confusion. And there's never going to be a time in his grandchildren's life where they will never have to contend with critical race theory. There's never a time in... in in their lives, in which they will have to deal with all of these influences, all of these systems of unbelief. There will never be a time 
in my children's life where they will not have to contend with what's called same-sex marriage. Sexual purity as the Bible declares it to be. The belittling of marriage. The total disregard for human life as it is in the womb. This is the world system. And it does not require these demonic forces to use anything that we would call magic or supernatural to accomplish their goal. And we walked according to the course of this world. And we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We breathed his air. We walked his ground. This world system of evil, which has its own kingdom, its own ideology, its leaders, and we at one time were its followers. Among them too, we too all worked, or formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We are by nature, brother and sister, never forget that you were by nature a child of wrath. All of us are locked up under this world system of sin and opposition to God. All are enslaved to sin. All are estranged from God. All, as the text tells us, all are children deserving God's wrath. If we are to see ourselves correctly, brother and sister, and you who may not claim Christ, if we are to see ourselves correctly, we must see as God sees. Some here who are apart from Christ even now, who are in this miserable condition, who are dead in their sins and trespasses, might be inclined to say that things are not as bad for them. They might say, man, you and Paul, you guys are harsh. It's not that bad for me. I'm not dead. They point to what they are doing. And they say, I do catechisms with my family. And I read the Bible. On Sunday, I go to church with my family and without a fight. I get in my polo shirt. I get in my, my cleanest pants. I put on my dress shoes. There is no fight. There is no resistance. I do all that is asked of me to the best of my ability. For the most part, I obey my parents. And I might be annoying to my brother and sister, but I do not intend them any harm. And if anyone was to cause them harm, I would stand in the way and I would defend them. I would show them real love. I love my mom. And yeah, sometimes I might not clean my room as fast as she wants me to, but eventually I obey. I am a good kid. I am a good person. I am the farthest thing from spiritually dead. Now, if this is true of you, and you are inclined to say those things, 
Jesus called people like that whitewashed tombs. You see, the Pharisees weren't just a group of people that lived a long time ago who followed all the rules, and Jesus gave a hard time. The Pharisees lived today, and they most often live today among those who hear the gospel every Sunday, who obey the rules, but will not repent and believe. So what is a whitewashed tomb? It is a body that you dip in white paint and call it good. You paint it with white, you whitewash it, so that all of its imperfections, all of its death, all of its stink will be dealt with. Now that might not mean a whole lot for us because in our country, death is one of those things that we don't think about and we put it away and it's one of the reasons why in 2020, I believe we reacted in the way that we did because it forced us with the reality of death. So whitewashed tombs might not mean a whole lot to us. But I want to ask the young men who are single that if they were to take a corpse and they were to put a wedding dress on it, how quick would they be to wanting to marry it? What do you call a corpse in a wedding dress? You call it a corpse. And what do you call someone who is spiritually dead, who tries to adorn themselves with good works? You call them spiritually dead. See, your good works will not save you, as the text will go on to say. If you are to see yourself correctly, you must see yourself as God sees you. Now, some here who are in Christ might be inclined to say that things are still as bad as, as, bad as this text says for them. Isn't that ironic? That there are some who are in Christ who might be inclined to say that things are still that bad. They sin, they must be spiritually dead. They are very much aware of the Spirit's conviction in their life. They are very much aware of anxieties over the, the state of their soul. Well, brother and sister, if that is your category, if you find yourself to be inclined to say that of yourself, and you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are trusting in His life, His death, and His resurrection, be, I want to remind you that you too are pointing to what you are doing instead of looking to what Christ has done. Jesus has a word, he has a name for people like that. People like you who are questioning your assurance of salvation, who say things are just as spiritually dead in their lives. Jesus calls people like that poor in spirit. And he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So be encouraged in that and praise your Lord and your Savior in that. Now, God, hallelujah, does not leave us in this miserable condition. He does not leave us estranged from God. Or from, yeah. We have a blessed condition with Christ, and this is verse 4 through 7. But God 
being rich in mercy because of his great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Because God the Father is great in love, he is rich in mercy. He says that God was great in love because of his great love. It's not through his love, but because of his love. It's not so much that it was because he saw anything lovely in us. Remember, we're still dead in our trespasses and sin. We're still a spiritual corpse. It is not like the young man who, when he sees the young lady, finds something lovely in her. One day, you will, you, you'll have that experience. You married men can all testify to it. There are many things which we forget. Our wives will let be the first to tell you. There are many things which we forget. But the one thing that a, that a young man never forgets is the first time he sees the most lovely of all God's creatures, woman. Now, I won't bore you with the details, but just know that in my mind, in my filing cabinet, somewhere behind all the stuff that I forgot, I do remember the first time I saw Jessica, and I remember the time that I saw her down the aisle. She was lovely. That's not what God did when he looked at me. There was nothing lovely. He saw a dead corpse. It wasn't through his love. It was because of his love. God is love. That's what he is. It was because he is love that he showed mercy. It is not on account of anything good in us. There is nothing desirable about us. His love wanted what was good for us. He was rich in mercy. You see, when you read these verses, the expected response that you might have if you know anything about God from that point back in your Bible, is that God is holy, and the expected response from God isn't love, and it's not mercy. It's judgment. And there is no partiality with God in judgment. The expected response should be one of wrath. We were children of wrath. It's expected that He would be wrathful towards us. It should have been hatred. He should have hated when he looked at our spiritual state and saw the corpse of the spirit which we were. It should have despised him. It should have made his stomach turn in disgust. But that was not his response, brother and sister. That was not his response when he looked upon you. His response was one of rich mercy. The pollution of death, even spiritual death, should have at the very least sickened a living and holy God. Yet God is abundant in compassion. Praise God. 
Praise God. God had made us alive. He has raised us up with Christ. This is resurrection language. And has seated us with Christ, which is ascension language. God made us who were powerless and helpless alive with Christ. Christ's death has brought us life. He raised us up who were dead with Christ. His resurrection pictures your resurrection. You know, I talk a lot about the glorification, about the resurrection of believers on the great day. And sometimes it can feel for us so not real. We believe it. We would confess it, but it, it doesn't seem real. Jesus' resurrection pictures our resurrection. It is real. We who were dead spiritually have been raised with resurrection life. And one day when we die, when our time has come, when it is time for the judgment, He will raise us again from the grave. He has seated us who were at home with the world, who breathed the air, the atmosphere of this worldly, ungodly system. He has lifted us above that atmosphere and has seated us with Christ we are now with Christ spiritually above the principalities and the powers of the air. No longer is our ruling influence, that ruling influence which we walked in our spiritual death, but our ruling influence, our King, is Christ, who is our ruling influence. And if that wasn't enough, God will show the kindness of His grace. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We one day will be revealed as the trophies of Christ's grace that we truly are. There are common accusations about God that He is not a loving, or He's not love. Those accusations of Him being some moral monster, some genocidal maniac, some unhinged fanatic, all of those accusations which sounds are so popular in our world today will be seen on the last day when he points to you brother and sister as proof of his grace god isn't the god of love he's a mean tyrant of a creature looking to zap and to curse, looking to take the life of the wicked. And on that great day, it's like, oh yeah? 
What about Steve Mentira over there? What about Mike Cunningham? What about Mike Fenrick? What about Jessica Mentir? What about the Geralds? They are all trophies of my grace. Brother and sister, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a trophy of Christ's grace. You know the great sins which Christ has forgiven you of. You know of the evil thoughts and the wicked deeds. You know sins that you have committed that perhaps no one else knows you have committed. And Christ has forgiven you of them all so that at the end of the age He may display what He declares that He is great in love and rich in mercy. God has already shown the kindness of His grace by the humiliation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the benefit of sinners. And that is true. But it's not some mere theological truth statement. It's living, and it's breathing, and it's being lived out before our very eyes as we walk as a church together as trophies of His grace. So if you are spiritually dead, if what I'm saying from the Word of God resonates in some way, and you say, how can I be made alive? The text tells you, look to Christ. Look to Christ to be made alive. Look to His life. Look to His death. Look to His resurrection. The Ephesians were not saved by reciting some prayer. There was not some string of magical incantation or some magical words in which they recited. Their sins were not forgiven because they were baptized as babies. They were saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Be made alive. Look to Christ. You who are dead, look to Christ and be made alive. Trust that His life was perfect and acknowledge that your life is not Confess that His death was a sin-bearing death. That that imperfection, those sins and those trespasses which, and transgressions which now separate you from life in, in God were laid upon Him and put to death on a cross. Trust His death. Trust His resurrection. Acknowledge His sinless life, His sin-bearing death, and His victory over death. Trust that not only can He save you, not only can He make you alive, but that He is willing. He is willing. He is rich in mercy. He is great in love. Look to Christ also, brother and sister, when you need to be reminded of God's grace. You might not be of the world anymore, but you live in it. And you experience its influence even to this day. The, the consequence of living in a sinful world is you're going to come across sinful things. You live and you face many consequences because of it. 
when you doubt that God is gracious. When you turn on the news and you see all of the sin and all of the wickedness that's going on, and you might be tempted to doubt and to put your faith and your hope in politicians, remember that a real Jesus died and that he died for real sinners. When you fear evil is winning, remember that a victorious Jesus still raises the dead to life. Remind yourself of the grace of God. And finally, our new life in Christ. So our testimony so far is that we were in a miserable state separated from God, we have a blessed condition with Christ. And now we have, finally, our new life in Christ, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We have been saved by grace, not by works. By the grace of God. Not because we merited it. What's grace? It's undeserved favor. We didn't deserve it. We're still dead when Christ came. God came and saved us and made us alive. It wasn't because there was anything that we've done. The possibility of us doing anything good that God would accept as perfectly pure and righteous, wasn't, it was impossible. Everything was polluted with our sin. This is what we refer to as total depravity. It's not that we are utterly depraved, that there's no good thing which we can do. It's just that, what, by total, what we mean is that in every part of our member, in our hands, in our speech, in our thoughts, in our deeds, in every way, there is not some mark of sin and corruption. And therefore, there is nothing that we can do that would please God. So if we were to be saved, if we were to be made alive, it must be of grace. It must be undeserved favor. And it is this way so that we cannot boast in ourselves. There is a way in which preaching the gospel, in which we can make it seem like if those silly people would not be ignorant like us and just accept the truth of the gospel, if they who have been taught so well would just accept for themselves those doctrines which we have taught them, which we have catechized them with, which we have preached from the pulpit every Sunday. If they would just stop being ignorant, they stop being dumb, if they just pay attention a little bit, they would be saved. But that's not how it happens. Because that's not how it happened with you. It is by the grace of God. Not by good common sense not by doing good things, but by God's grace. Now, we have been saved by grace, not by works. 
But according to the text, we have been saved for good works. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, in the future, we will be revealed as trophies of His grace. But currently, we are instruments in His hand. There are good works which He has prepared for us to walk in. There are good things which He has prepared for us to do. And He intends and expects that we obey and that we do them. And just as certain as our future life with God in Christ, just as certain as that, are the good works which God has us for us to do. They're just as certain. Because both were planned before the beginning of time, and because both are built and depended upon the foundation of Christ. Our salvation, our justification, is built upon Christ's life, upon His death, and His resurrection. And just as is true as it is of that, our sanctification, our, the process in which we are actually being made holy, the process in which we are doing those good works which are prepared for us, are built upon conformity to Christ. We are His workmanship created in who? Christ Jesus. And so, brother and sister, we are motivated by love and obligated by calling to do good works. And because I live in the United States of America and we are prone to, for everything to be big and glitzy and glamorous and celebrated as celebrity, as everything has to be popular, let's be reminded about some good works which we have been created for. It is a good work, brother, to wake up early, put your boots on, and go to work. Provide for your family and love them. That is a good work which you have been created for in Christ Jesus. Women, it is a good work to respect your husbands. Now, in some ways, men have it, I think, a little bit easier. We put our boots on, we go to work, we love, we show that love by our ability to provide. Women, you must respect you were called to respect, uh, I don't know about in your house, but in mine, lugheads. But that is a good work. It is a good work to love your children and to instruct them in the Lord. It is a good work to catechize them. It is a good work to participate and to facilitate family worship. It's hard. It's inconsistent sometimes, but it is a good work. You don't need to be Billy Graham, and you don't need to be William Carey, and you may not be called to preach the gospel in, in, in a setting like this, but there are good works which we are called to in Christ Jesus. It is a good work to obey the gospel, to repent, and to believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for saving us. We were dead 
in our sins and trespasses, but you made us alive with Christ. We will never tire of giving you thanks, and we will never tire of praising you. Our praise and our thanks may be weak, it may be feeble, but it is nonetheless genuine every time. We ask, O oh God, that if there is any here whose testimony can witness to the things of second of Ephesians two, one through ten, who can say that they were dead in their sins, who can say Christ made them alive who can say they are a new creation created in Christ Jesus, that all of their fears of not being believed, all of their fears of approaching others in this church with the good news that they have been saved, we ask, O oh God, that you would calm their fears and they might proclaim and witness and testify to the good which God has shown them in love and mercy. We also ask, O oh God, that you would raise up the spiritually dead, remove them from this worldly system, place them above with Christ, Oh, make them trophies of your grace. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified very much. In Jesus' name, amen.